0: Isaiah, chapter 33, it says, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered when you make an end of dealing treacherously. They will deal treacherously with you. O God, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nation shall be scattered and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar and the running to and fro of locusts. He shall run upon them. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Surely, their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you and the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire here. You who are afar off what I have done. And you who are near acknowledge my night, my might. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? We're going to pause there for just a moment. Recently, when I was at the Columbine Memorial, I met the person who was basically um, who did much to bring the memorial to fruition. And I remember my first words to him, I I remember coming upon the scene and 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 remembering and, and saying a promise kept. The Never Forgotten Fund was born in the midst of trial and sorrow. A community grieved over the loss of their children, the pain and suffering of injured students and the ripple effect of a community traumatized by wicked and evil behavior. But the earth has always been filled with violent people. And because the earth has always been filled with violent people, violence, cruelty, brutality needed a remedy. And the remedy was God. I know it sounds simplistic, but there are two kinds of people in the world. I know not Italian people and people who wish they were not Rocky fans and people who wish they were two kinds of people in the world. Those who make promises. And keep them. And those who make promises and break them. Each and every one of you, I suspect, have had a person break a promise in your life. It might have been your mother, it might have been your father, it might have been your husband, it might have been your wife, it might have been your children, it might have been your neighbor. Each and every one of us have experienced what it means to have a promise made and a promise broken. And in moments of honesty, each and every one of us will confess that we have made promises, we wanted to keep them, we intended to keep them. In our mind and in our hearts, we wanted to keep them and we broke them. And so sometimes we wonder whether or not. God breaks his promises. Is it possible for God to make a promise and then break a promise? And the answer is no, God keeps his promises, two of the great themes of scripture are those who oppose God will end in failure. And another theme is those who trust in the Lord, those who trust in the in the Lord. In the end, they will endure. They will stand the test of time. They will enter into God's reward. Those who embrace the mercy of God will receive it. Those who embrace the grace of God will receive it. Those who embrace the savior will receive forgiveness and eternal life. Isaiah is bringing the last of a series of six woes. And remember, they're pronounced primarily on Assyria, but but in the grand scheme of things, as God promises judgment on all those who oppose him, it manifests itself historically in this country that that we know as Assyria. Remember, Assyria had worked hard to destroy Jerusalem and to to destroy Judea. Assyria at this time was violent and brutal, wicked and cruel and violent. And for the most part, they were undefeated. The nation was ruled by a wicked king named Sennacherib. And in order to impose his will on nation after nation, he began his global determination of global governance. He wanted to quite literally rule the world. And in order to impose his will on nation after nation and build his global kingdom, he resorted to violence and brutality and wickedness and war. King Hezekiah attempted to put off the Assyrians by promising them tribute. He saw the Assyrians coming and he thought, look, I I will reason with them. I'll talk with them. It it makes sense. Uh, It it doesn't make good sense to destroy me. And the, the story is found in 2 Kings chapter 18. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 14, it says, Then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. It was his way of saying, if I've offended you in any way, if I've hurt you in any way, if I've crossed some line, if if something is happening where I deserve this, hey, I'm sorry. And whatever it is you think that you need, I'm going to pay it. And it goes on in Second Kings chapter 18 and says, And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. If you're wondering how much money that is. A talent in those days was a unit of money that quite literally represented the amount of money that a person could make in a lifetime. And so when you think about it, he assesses 300 lifetimes of silver, 30 lifetimes of gold. It says, so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. He literally stripped the gold that was in the tabernacle, the doors that were encrusted with gold. He peeled the gold off and he gave it to Sennacherib as tribute. And it says... And from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid. And he gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, Rabbiserus, and Rabshekah from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Here's what happened. Tell me what you want and I'll pay it. And he paid it. And then the Assyrian army came anyway. And Shennacher came with a message. He said, Jehovah has given me permission to destroy you. We've been conducting some sacrifices ourselves and we think God wants to destroy you. But they were lying. God wanted to save them. Using them, Isaiah paints a picture of the fate of the violent and the wicked. He he uses this particular story to paint a picture on everyone who would impose their will on others and at the same time violate the will of God. He basically... Reminds us of something in the first 14 verses, God guarantees judgment on those who commit acts of terror, acts of violence. And so, again, once again, God issues this stern warning. And in the last half of the chapter, God also guarantees the deliverance of the righteous. And once again, he gives a picture of Messiah's first kingdom and future kingdom. And in the opening verse where it says, woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. It's the warning that God is giving to Shennacherib and to the army of Assyria. You've heard it in the book of Galatians, that whatever a man sows, that also he will the way we say it in our culture and society, what comes around, God is not mocked. If you show violent if you sow violence and wickedness, you're going to reap violence and wickedness. If you if you take advantage, you know what plunder is, it's taking something that doesn't belong to you. And they've dealt treacherously. And God makes it abundantly clear that He will be dealt with treacherously. In verse two, it says, Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation. Also in time of trouble, you have to understand what's happening. Isaiah and Hezekiah now leave and they take the threats of King Sennacherib And they place them. Before them, and Hezekiah and Isaiah begin to weep and to cry out to God. Remember, they had foolishly entered into a, an alliance with Egypt. They had trusted Egypt. And Egypt let them down. In verse 3, it says, At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered. The cry is one in which God will intervene. And in verse four, it says, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts, he shall run upon them. The picture are like insects, caterpillars that go to a rich, fruitful grove or locusts that go to a corn crop or a wheat crop or any kind of fruit. And as the locusts and caterpillars depend, descend upon the wheat field or or the or, or the farm, it just literally decimates it and takes everything with it. And that's exactly what the Assyrians had done. I think you know something. The devil will promise you things. If you will give in in certain areas of your life, if you will compromise in what you're thinking, if you will compromise in what you're watching, if you will compromise in your friendships and relationships, the devil will sometimes say to you, hey, it's OK. It's OK. I won't bug you after this. Yeah, you laugh because you know the truth. He's a liar. Hey, wait a minute. I, I thought you said that this was the end of the, uh, the compromise. You shouldn't suck with the devil. And so in verse five, it says the Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. That means that the Lord is high and lifted up. He lives in a place that is that he occupies in eternity. It says he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. If you want fairness, if you want equity, if you want what's right instead of what's wrong, You're not going to find it apart from God and you're not going to find it apart from Christ. In verse six, it says wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Do you see what's happening In order to have stability, you have to be wise, you have to be knowledgeable, and you have to trust in the strength of salvation. Hezekiah had stripped away the silver and stripped away the gold. Hezekiah gave away the nation's wealth. But God wasn't mad at him. God didn't hate him. God was willing to forgive him even though he had given away his people's future. Look what it says in verse six. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. The understanding is, even if you lose all of your gold, and even if you lose all of your silver, even if you lose your job, even if you may be facing a foreclosure or an eviction, maybe you're facing some tremendous loss in your life. And some of you have lived lives in which You lost your home and you lost your marriage and you lost your trust and you lost your confidence. But God makes it abundantly clear. that if you will trust the Lord. If you will acknowledge him. If you will trust him. He will be your treasure. But the fear of the Lord is the true treasure. And in verse 7, Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. This is a picture of the strongest warriors in the army of Judah that helped protect Jerusalem. Do you know what, what this picture is? It's a picture of the soldiers who are standing on the turrets of the wall. They've watched the invading Assyrian army come and they've watched them destroy the village after village. They've watched them kill village after village. They've watched them destroy the crops, and they're standing because their relationship with Egypt has failed. Assyria has double crossed them and decided to invade anyway. The roads are blocked, the crops are ruined. In verse 8, it says the highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. It's a picture of Shenekrib and the armies of Assyria. All of the trade routes have been decimated. You can't travel and conduct business. The Assyrians have broken the deal. They have despised the cities and they don't care who knows it. The Assyrians would be one of those group of people who would say promises were made to be broken. You've all heard about the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. And that's exactly what the Assyrians were doing. They've broken their promises. They took the tribute. But they decided to take Jerusalem. Just like another king. A future king. You know, the Bible talks about another king who will come with an army. Another king in the future who will enter into a covenant, who will make a treaty with the surrounding nations, promising safety and security for Jerusalem. In the Bible, he's spoken of as the Antichrist. He's also called the son of perdition. He's also called the wicked king. He's also called the Antichrist. You probably heard the statement that those who are willing to sacrifice freedom for safety will wind up with neither. In Isaiah 33, look what it says in verses 9 and 10. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled Sharon is like a wilderness and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. These are the pictures of the countries to the north that have already been savaged and ravaged and completely decimated by the northern army. So here's the picture. Everything to the north of you gone. Everything to the south of you failed. There's no hope in the east and there's no hope from the west. Have you ever been in a situation that the only way you were going to get out of that situation is God? It was the Lord. Because the banks... Your checking account had failed. Your job had failed. Your friends had failed. Your family has failed. You have absolutely nothing to rely on except God. That's exactly where the people of Judah and Jerusalem find themselves. And in verse 9, the Lord speaks. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. All the options are gone. There's no one left to trust. Judah and Jerusalem have nowhere else to go. They have nowhere else to turn. They have no, nothing else that they can possibly do. The only way they're going to get out of this is if God delivers them. If God will save them. And remember what's happening in the temple. Isaiah and Hezekiah have spread the threats. They are crying. They are weeping. They are crying out to God. And in verse 11, look what the prophet writes. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. Here's what's happening. The Assyrians have big plans. The big plan is to go to Jerusalem, just like they've taken every other city before. Every other city that stood in their path, they were going to take it. That God had a different plan. Because he wasn't through with Judah. And he wasn't through with Jerusalem. And so you may have grown up in circumstances. Maybe you've been involved in situations where you have watched your friends die from alcohol and drug abuse. You've watched marriages fail. You've watched the devil have his way in the circumstances of your life. And the devil said it's going to be no different with you. I am going to take you and I'm going to squeeze you and I'm going to first of all attack you in your mind and then I'm going to attack you in your heart and I'm going to destroy you and I am going to burn you up like so much firewood and you can go to church and you can read your Bible and you can hang out with your Christian friends. But I'm going to destroy you. And God says. I have a different plan for you. I love you. And I have a different plan for you. I want to use you to glorify myself and expand the kingdom of God. And so when it says. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. The Assyrians have this big big plan. They're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to take it like every other city that they have ever taken. But because God has a different plan, the Assyrian leaders are pregnant. Here's the idea. They're pregnant with big ideas. But instead of giving birth to victory, they're going to give birth to chaff. Instead of giving birth to... To something rich, they're going to give birth to stubble. Their big ideas are going to burn in the furnace of God's judgment where it says your breath, where it says your breath as fire shall devour you. Here is the idea. Isaiah is painting a prophetic picture of them breathing, of wanting to fight. Uh, your breath as fire. They're panting. They're yelling. They're aching to kill, to murder, to destroy. They want to fight. Their hot breath, by the way, would be the very substance that would ignite God's judgment. Have you ever seen someone who is so ready for a fight that they have this kind of a bring it on? Bring it on. But here's what's happening. The Assyrians are chomping at the bit. They can't wait to destroy Jerusalem. Satan and the demons of hell are chomping at the bit. They can't wait to destroy you and to destroy your life and to destroy your ministry. But God has a different plan. It says, and the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. The enemies have surrounded Jerusalem. And an army north of a hundred and eighty six thousand people have surrounded the city and they are going to destroy the city. And Isaiah and Hezekiah are weeping and crying and crying out to God. They're crying out to God for mercy and for deliverance. And in the morning. They wake up and the cloud lifts and the sun comes up and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers have been killed by a supernatural messenger from God. The angel of the Lord has come into the camp and killed every single one of them. You need to understand something. God is patient. And God is kind. And God is long suffering with his enemies. But when God decides to pull the trigger. When God decides uh, we're done here. When God decides that judgment will come. Guess what? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. You know, the Bible in the New Testament says, Give place to wrath. It was Paul's way of saying, Believe, believe, believe with all of your heart. If you've never believed anything, just like I, I ask you over and over again to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to rely on Jesus, you need to believe with all of your heart. That God will right every wrong, and He will smite every enemy, and He will one day judge all of His enemies and destroy them. And in verse 14, look what it says The sinners in Zion are afraid, fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Do you understand the consequences that takes place in the book of Isaiah when the sun lifts and the cloud lifts and 186,000 people are dead? The immediate response of the people who are living inside of the gates of Jerusalem is fear. And the fear comes because if God is willing to judge his enemies, the immediate response of the people living in Jerusalem is. What's to stop God from judging inside of the city? If God is willing to judge outside the city gates, is he willing to judge inside the city gates? By the way, remember in the New Testament, the Bible talks about if God is willing to judge the enemy of God, Is he willing to judge you? Here's what the New Testament says. Examine your own heart. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that if you will examine your own heart, so God won't have to keep a short list with God when it comes to sin. God's deliverance was told far and wide. Some scholars believe Psalm 126 grew out of this experience. If you are unfamiliar with Psalm 126, you might just turn there real, real quickly and real briefly. Some scholars believe that this particular psalm was written by Hezekiah after the destruction of the Assyrian army. As a matter of fact, it says remembrance of past blessing. Look what it says in Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who were in a dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. The idea being... Not just we dodged a bullet. But God saved me. He delivered me. That's the idea. And you need to understand something. God didn't deliver us from our enemies in order order for us to return to our sin. I wish we had time to hear each and every one of your testimonies. But if we did have that time, if all of a sudden we decided that we were going to devote the rest of the week to talk about how God has blessed you and how God has saved you, how God has taken you from miserable circumstances and he's forgiven your sin and he's cleansed you from all unrighteousness through Christ our Lord. Jesus didn't save you so that you could return to the life that you left. In Psalm 130, verse 4, it says, But there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. God didn't forgive you in order for you to continue in sin. God didn't forgive you so that the power of sin should remain locked over you, but to break the power of sin. I like John Corson's comment on this passage. He writes, Does God see what we're doing? He doesn't even know how we're believing or behaving. God's people had said that earlier. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 15, the idea being, hey, God doesn't know what's going on. And if he does, he doesn't care. You probably heard that. God's too big. Controlling the whole universe. He doesn't have time to figure out what I'm doing. John Corson writes now however having seen God move against the Assyrians they quake fearing they're next in line for judgment who can stand in the presence of such an awesome god <laughs> and so in Isaiah chapter 33 verse 14 we you can turn back there and it says In verse 14, again, who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Do you know what it's saying? It's not talking about the fire of hell. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is only one thing that can survive in a fire. And that's another fire. God will burn away. And God will purge everything that is wicked, everything that is unholy, everything that is unrighteous, everything that is self-sufficient instead of dependent upon God. That's the idea. The Bible says only the holy and the pure will see God. Remember, God said, be perfect as I am perfect. So how do you become holy? And how do you become perfect? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that in and of yourself, you have absolutely no way of doing that. Have you ever cried out to God? I'm so wicked. I'm unclean. You even maybe thought, stay away from me. Unclean. But God's willing to purge you and cleanse you. Because the moment you receive Christ by faith, God gives you a new nature. You come into God's kingdom. You see, you are given the righteousness of Christ the moment that you trust Christ for your salvation. And in verse 15, it says, he who walks righteously. And speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. Who gestures with his hands. Refusing bribes. Who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed. And shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Who are the, Messiah, who are the citizens in Messiah's kingdom? It is the righteous. And who are the righteous? He gives us the answer in verse 15. He who walks righteously. And speaks uprightly. For the for the person who is righteous, it isn't the person who just simply says, I believe in God. I go to church. I read my Bible. I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in I believe in the whole Bible. I believe in the table of contents. I believe even in the maps in the back. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. That just simply acknowledging the content of the Bible. Isn't everything. That with the acknowledgement of the content of the Bible comes a transformation of your heart and a transformation of your mind and a transformation in which you live differently. The righteous will be delivered from those who persecute them and terrorize them and otherwise plague the people of God. Isaiah reminds us that the righteous are the people who believe in the Lord and know the Lord and walk uprightly with the Lord. They love God's word and they obey God's commands. Remember what it says in the New Testament? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments." Well, I love you, Lord, but I still want to live like a sinner. Guess what? There's a word for that, even though you're uncomfortable with the word. It's called hypocrite. The righteous speak the truth. The righteous refuse to lie. They refuse to embrace deception. They refuse to deceive others. They refuse to make themselves rich by receiving bribes or engaging in extortion. They refuse to take part in the plots to murder. They refuse to embrace violence and other evil that harm people. They refuse to engage and embrace those people who kill other people for no good reason. When I was reading this, it made me think about abortion. Because that's what abortion is it's a conspiracy to kill someone who's innocent. Isaiah says they shut their eyes to all the seductions and temptations to do evil. The righteous basically say, I've had enough. They turn off the TV. They close the book. They exit their computer and they refuse to partake in all of the stuff that is polluting them. And guess what? In Messiah's kingdom, He keeps promises. He keeps His Word and He keeps the promises. It says in verse 15: He who walks up righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of the oppressors, who gestures with his hands, refusing the bribes, shuts his eyes from seeing evil, verse 16: He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. Now, all of a sudden, the shift is taking place just like God promises to punish his enemies. God promises... In Messiah's kingdom, that the citizens of the kingdom and the righteous will be taken care of in an inexhaustible supply of resources. Messiah will provide safety and Messiah will provide security and it will be more secure than a mountain fortress. It says he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure the righteous live above it all. They're fed with bread and water. And that expression, like I said before, he will dwell on high means that the righteous live. Where God lives. Where does God live? On high. You know what it made me think about what it says, what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter three, verse two. Set your mind on things above and not on things below. Remember, he writes from prison in Philippians chapter three, verse 20. Paul writes for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. We think on high. We live on high. To dwell on high with those above, that will be glory. To dwell below with those we know, that's a different story. But Isaiah invites us to look up and look what it says in verse 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. You need to understand something. Promises are now being made. In verse 17, Isaiah hears the word of the Lord. The righteous will see the king in his beauty, in his glory, and his majesty and splendor. They will live with him in the land of the kingdom that stretches over the face of the earth. There's no greater privilege than to see Jesus face to face, be allowed to love him and worship him. This is one of the great promises that is given to the righteous. Paul talks about it. John talks about it. Peter writes about it. John writes, he says to awake or actually David talks about awakening in the likeness um, in Matthew, chapter five, verse eight. Remember, Jesus himself says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do You know why they'll see God, not simply because they're pure in heart. But in that purity of heart, the reason why that they see God is they can't see anything else. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 it says beloved now we are the children of God and it has not yet appeared what we shall be but we know this that when when he shall appear we shall see him as he is when he will be revealed. And everyone who has this hope in his heart purifies himself, even as he is pure. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays to his father. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, as he's praying to the father, asks the father The Father's permission for you to look at Him. And that you'll see Him forever. In Isaiah 33, look at verses 18 and 19. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. I want to pause for just a moment and read it again. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Does that scripture sound familiar to you? Does it sound at all familiar? Paul actually quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians, chapter one, verse 20. He writes, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Paul quotes this scripture when he considers the limitations of human wisdom and human thinking. And then when it comes to the mind of God and the ways of God and the wisdom of God, I don't think I ever understood 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 until today. When I was reading the passage and Paul quotes the scripture because Isaiah is talking about the promises of God. And the future and heaven and seeing the Lord and it stretches the imagination. Isaiah stretches our imagination and he wants you to consider the promises of God. And as he he asks you to consider the promises of God, he invites you to believe something that you intuitively have always known. That God... His promises. and look what it says in the very next verse, in verse 20 and 21. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships shall pass by. Remember, Jerusalem isn't a coastal city. Jerusalem isn't like Caesarea. It's not like Tyre and Sidon. It's not even like Nineveh, which is by the Tigris. It isn't like Babylon along the Euphrates. In that day, the Lord Himself becomes the city's defense. Jerusalem was up on top of a mountain inland. There seems to be some evidence that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that when He places His Foot on the Mount of Olives, an earthquake will separate the Kidron Valley and a gushing stream will come and and people will be able to access Jerusalem by water. But look what it says. In that day. In Messiah's day, the Lord himself is the city's defense. He will be to the holy city, the broad river. But the kind of river where no enemy can can come in and plunder every coastal city, face the danger of a navy coming and exterminating them. But Isaiah promises that the Lord will be the protector of his people. And in verses 22 and 23, it says, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle is loose. They could not strengthen their mast; They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey here. Isaiah reminds the people that the Lord is the judge The Lord is the lawgiver. The Lord is the rightful king. The Lord is salvation. And the expression, the lame take the prey. Do you understand what that means? Here's the idea. Sorrow and sickness are gone. In Messiah's kingdom, the weakest of God's children is stronger than the most powerful foe. The greatest threat will be met by the weakest link. In other words, the most impoverished, the weakest, the lamest. The, the, the most weaselly little skinny person in the kingdom of God will be able to dispatch the greatest threat that's the idea the weak the lame the empty the hurt those who have the greatest need will will be able to overcome their inability and insufficiency by the ability and the sufficiency that's found in God's messiah and isaiah says that the messiah is the judge and that the messiah is the lawgiver and that the messiah is the king and that the messiah is the savior Do you understand now when when Jesus quotes Isaiah and he says in his opening sermon, as he opens his ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel, to open blind eyes, deaf ears, to set it at liberty, the captives. And then he closes the book and he sits in the synagogue and he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That he promises to be all that Isaiah said he would be. And look at verse 24. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. The citizens of the kingdom of God. The citizens who inhabit the kingdom of the Messiah will not say, I am sick. I had the doctors on my radio program. Every Wednesday, I have my Ask the Doctor program, and I told them, "Do you realize that in Messiah's kingdom, you are—you are so unemployed?" And they all said, "I'm okay with that." I said, "If it's any comfort to you, I also will be unemployed." You won't need a shepherd and a Bible teacher. Because you'll have the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of a person helping you understand the written word, you will have the living word before you forever. And they will say, I am forgiven. Remember, Jerusalem has a long history of warfare, of bloodshed, of violence, of sickness. And of sin. But the Bible promises that the law and the word of God will go forth from Jerusalem. Remember, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Isaiah in chapter two, verse three, it says many people shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Micah repeats that in chapter four, verse two. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths for out of Zion. The law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem in the end. Over and over again. The Bible says, don't trust men. Trust the Lord. But he made a promise to me. Men break promises. Husbands break promises. Wives break promises. Children break promises. Friends break promises. Governments. Do governments break promises? I heard that nervous laugh. I want to recap the promises just real quickly. Number one the righteous will dwell on high. That's a promise. You will dwell where God lives. That's verse 16. Number two, the righteous will be safe and secure and provided for. The righteous will see the great king, the Lord. The righteous will be forever free of terror and violence and oppression. That's what it says in verses 18 and 19. The righteous will worship in Jerusalem, which is the center of worship. And it won't be the center of violence and it won't be the the center of terrorist attacks. It will be a place of peace and The Lord will govern the righteous because He's the judge and the lawgiver and the king. And the righteous will be brought through the storms of life despite almost sinking. And in verse 23, look what it says. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Do you know what verse 23 is talking about? It's talking about a storm on a sea and the ship is going down. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, we're all going to die? This is pretty much death. This means we're pretty much over with. But here's the idea. The Lord will save the righteous through the storms of life. And will bring you safely into Messiah's kingdom. And some of you have storms. And you're wondering if you're going to make it through the storm. And I guarantee you. I, I guarantee you. that if you know and love the Messiah. He will bring you through the storm of life. And he will place you safely into the arms of Jesus. And remember the righteous. Won't be sick. There will be no disease. All sickness is gone in Messiah's kingdom. The righteous no longer shed tears due to sickness and disease. And the righteous will receive rewards. That's what it says in verse 23. By the way. And the storm lifted. And the cloud lifted. And the people left the city gates. They went out to the 186,000 Assyrians who had been slain and they stripped them of their armor and they went back to their camps and they received the booty, the wealth of all of the nations that the Assyrians had destroyed. And they took back their silver. And they took back their gold. You know what that becomes a picture of? It becomes a picture of the fact that in Messiah's kingdom, you'll receive wealth, possessions that you didn't earn. The righteous are forgiven their sin in Messiah's kingdom. Look what it says at the very end. The people who dwell in it, that is in the kingdom... Will be forgiven their iniquity Have you ever asked the Lord this question Well I have to live with my sin forever What's the right answer No No On this side of eternity Jesus has delivered you from The penalty of sin You're not going to go to hell. That should make each and every one of you happy who know the Lord Jesus Christ. God's delivered you from the penalty of sin. He's delivered you from the power of sin. And in Messiah's kingdom, you will be delivered from the presence of sin. Two kinds of people in the world. Those who make promises and break them. And those who make promises and keep them. Isaiah's word to those who find themselves under huge attack. God's willing to make promises. And keep them. We're going to have communion now. and What I want you to do is just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. But let's pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father. Lord, for that person who is here. Lord, who hasn't placed their confidence and their trust in the Lord. Lord, they find themselves weak and they find themselves constantly caving into the world and constantly caving into the flesh and constantly caving into the devil. Lord, I pray that they would embrace the three great champions. The Father, who has overcome the world. The Son, who has destroyed the works of the devil. And the Holy Spirit, who lives in us so that we need not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Lord, we thank you for your promises. And that, Lord, you're looking for an excuse. Not to condemn us, but to save us. Not to judge us, but to forgive us. And not for us to live in prison, but to live free. Set free. Not free to sin, but free to love you and serve you and serve others. So Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person who's here tonight. Who wants to experience that freedom. Lord, I pray that they would set aside their sin. And like Isaiah and like Hezekiah of old, they would put the threats of the devil before them and they would cry out to you, even with tears and supplication. Lord, we have nowhere to turn and no one to trust. It seems like every person who's ever spoken to me has broken their their promise. But Lord, I understand that you won't break your promise to me. That you'll love me and forgive me. You'll restore me and then promise me eternal life and then give it to me. So now, Lord, I pray that you would fill these new women with the knowledge of your presence. Lord, I pray that they would their hearts as we get ready to partake of communion. In Jesus' name. Amen.